When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When I think about what might be trapped between the rock crystal and the Clausoni enamel, I think the past might physically be there in the form of a single molecule. In this podcast, we're travelling back in time with a precious golden artefact, a beautiful jewel inscribed with the words... A king made me. The king who earned the epithet great. A brave soldier who led the final resistance against the Viking Mikkelheathen Hera. Over a thousand years old, this priceless work of art gives us a window into his time, illuminating a ruler with a reputation for learning, good governance and graciousness lost and found by chance. This jeweller's masterpiece tells us so much about a man who had a profound effect on shaping the British Isles. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. In the last episode, you took us to the capital of the Anglo-Saxon Kingdom of Mercia, which had just been conquered by the Vikings' great heathen army. Where are we now? It's not a place that we're going to this week, Paul. Uh, strictly speaking, it's an object. It's a thing. Uh, it's a small treasure uh, that gives up an insight into the man who would be the last Anglo-Saxon king standing when the Vikings swept across these isles. It actually sits in the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford and it's called the Alfred Jewel. Which is a little wonder. Many people will have seen it, will have seen a photograph of it or they'll have seen it on television. Many people may have visited the genuine article. It is absolutely a wonderful object. I would defy anyone not to be just profoundly affected by it. It sits in the England 400 to 1600 AD gallery and I've uh, I've filmed with it on not one but two occasions 
it's about two inches long. It's made, or, or, the, or the case of it, the frame of it, the main part of it is gold. A kind of gold that almost doesn't seem to exist anymore. A particularly buttery, golden colour of gold. It looks old. It, it's the kind of gold that you maybe associate with Egyptian tombs and, and Tutankhamun. A, a kind of gold that you just don't seem to see in modern jewellery. It's got a different luster about it. It's teardrop shaped and the, the gold frames a cloisonne enamel a depiction of a male figure fr from the waist up. So it's, it's unmistakably a, a male figure but more than that you'd be hard pushed to say whether it's a likeness or someone. It, it has been suggested that it's a likeness of Alfred himself Alfred the Great, King Alfred the Great. Other people have said that it could be Jesus. The figure is holding in his hands, one in each hand, what looks like a flower. So interpret that however you will. For a long time, people thought it might be Jesus. Other people thought it might be King Alfred himself. But more recently, it's been interpreted as a representation of the sense of sight you know, one of the senses, like smell, like hearing, sight. And it's quite appropriate once you understand what the thing is. The cloisonne enamel, colourful little depiction of a, of a male figure, is underneath a piece of rock crystal. Ah, what is cloisonne? Cloisonne. Cloisonne enamel. It's colour, pigment that's been made liquid, and then it sets as enamel, and it's all pieced together like a little mosaic to create the image. It's a technique. You know, cloisonne enamel is a technique for making artworks. Do we know when it was made? It's taken for granted, really, that it was made in the 9th century during Alfred's reign because it says on it, it says around the outside there's lettering that spells out in Old English, Alfred ordered me to be made. So it's fairly straightforward to understand why people call it the Alfred Jewel, you know, because he had these things commissioned. So, that, so it's a teardrop of gold framing this cloisonne enamel image of, a, of the sense of sight, and it's protected by a, a piece of shaped rock crystal, like glass, but not glass, actually crystal, that's been cut and sits over and protects the cloisonne enamel figure. The gold is, un I mean, it's breathtakingly beautifully executed. It's generally regarded by jewellers, by art critics and art historians to be a genuine high point of Anglo-Saxon art. It's as good or better than anything else. And the delicacy of the filigree gold work and the, and the lettering, I mean, the gold looks almost as if it's been piped like icing. It's so, it's so extravagant. It's such a, a bold and confident display of skill on the part of the jeweller or jewellers. Was it the work of one person? Was it, was it several bits brought together? Even for someone like me, you know, who's not an expert in these matters, you'd quite simply be blown away by it. Because it's small, but the finery of it and the, the detail and the skill with which it's been executed. The gold forms, it culminates 
at the, where, a, where a teardrop narrows to a point. It culminates in a representation, a stylized representation of the head of a beast. It'd be difficult to see exactly what beast, maybe something like a wild boar, or maybe just a fantastical, mythical creature, but with an open mouth. So it comes to the head of a beast and then it, it's got a, a round opening, an, an open mouth. Now, over the years, it was interpreted variously that it might have been a pendant. But the, but the problem with it being a pendant is if you hung it, the figure of sight would be upside down. So although it, it has that look, it doesn't really work as a pendant. So that idea was dismissed. Then it was thought it might have been like the centrepiece of a crown. You know, that it might have been mounted possibly at the front of a gold crown, maybe in lieu of a great jewel. Although it is a jewel in its own right. But most recently, experts have agreed that it's the handle of a bit of kit called an eistel, which you, you might well say a pointer. So imagine that the little gold and enamel and rock crystal piece is the handle and protruding from the mouth of the beast would have been a long piece of wood or maybe even ivory to create a thing like a conductor's baton. Okay? And it would have been used for reading, for a public reading of a book. Now, during his time on the throne, Alfred became very impressed by literacy. He was a literate man and he understood just instinctively the importance of literacy and reading, apart from anything else, as a means of getting a message out to the general population. But obviously he appreciated that during his reign, the general public, his subjects, were illiterate in the main. And the ability to read was largely that of the, of the churchmen, the monks and the nuns who had been schooled in Latin and such. And so his idea was he ordered uh, copies of a book, a very important book at the time. It had been written by Pope Gregory the Great and it was called Pastoral Care. And it was basically a kind of a, a medieval guide to good management, to good rulership, to running the country, to looking after people. And Alfred was so impressed with this book, Pastoral Care, by Pope Gregory the Great, that he commissioned copies of it to be sent to every bishop in his kingdom. And the order was that someone would stand in front of the illiterate congregation with this book and they would read it out to the congregation. They would read it out to the people. And to make it more of a, sort of a theatrical event, each book went with one of these eistels. And so the person at the front would stand and would point it out word by word, line by line, as they were reading from it, you know, to make it a bit more of a visual feast. And obviously because the book was so important and the message was so important, it would have been unseemly to use your, your dirty old finger. So that the, the words would be pointed out by something lovely. And so these eistels were sent out so that only, you know, the tip of the ivory or the tip of the polished wood with this fantastic bejeweled handle that would be all that would touch it would be quite the event so that's what the Alfred jewel is it's the handle of a pointer at one point there would have been many of these things now you might well ask how do we have the one we've got the one that sits now in the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford well as is so often the case you know these are the sort of things that archaeologists dream about finding during an excavation and from time to time they do of course they do but even more often, these items turn up by chance. 
Now, the Alfred Jewel was found in 1693 by a ploughman ploughing in his field and sharp-eyed or whatever, watching the sod getting turned over by his plough, he noticed, we can imagine, a glint in the soil. And when he, when he picked it up, here it was. Gold's amazing in that it doesn't corrode, doesn't rust, it doesn't change. And so it would have come out of the ground as bright as the day and hour when it was made. It would just have been a matter of, you know, sort of rubbing off the, the mud or whatever else was obscuring it. Because gold just doesn't, it's incorruptible. That's partly why people are so transfixed by it. After a thousand years or 10,000 years, it doesn't alter. And so he would have seen this thing and he, and he picked it up. Now, he found it at North Petherton, which is a, a village in Somerset down in the southwest. And this is particularly interesting for us in the context of Alfred, because it's quite close to, or it's just a few miles away from a, another little dot on the map called Athelney. And it was at Athelney in AD 878 that Alfred waited with his army, ready to go and confront Guthrum. Now, when we talked about St Wiston's crypt in Repton, we mentioned the fact that the great Micklehethan Hereb was on the march through the Seven Kingdoms of the old Anglo-Saxon England. And that by the time they were at Repton, they had already, the Viking army, the Micklehethan Hera, had already knocked over East Anglia and Northumbria. And then they took Mercia. And it was as they overwintered in Repton at St Wiston's, it, it looked like, you know, they had the momentum to, to knock over all of the Seven Kingdoms. But at 878, the Viking army, led by Guthrum, a Viking called Guthrum, it was confronted by Alfred and his forces. By this time, they were the last independent Anglo-Saxon kingdom. It was Wessex. Alfred's Wessex was the last of the seven, still standing. And he confronted Guthrum in battle. They set out from Athelney. The battle took place at a place called Eddington, nearby. And Guthrum and his Vikings were defeated once and for all. And in the aftermath of that, I mean, Alfred was a very savvy king. He was brave, but he was clever as well. And he understood that there had to be some kind of meeting, some kind of compromise to, to handle the Vikings. You know, just beating them in one battle wasn't necessarily going to be enough. But the defeat or the, or the victory, Alfred's victory at Eddington, put the brakes on the Vikings. It put the brakes on the whole operation. And it was in the aftermath of that encounter that Alfred persuaded Guthrum to convert to Christianity. Alfred was already a devout Christian king. And he persuaded Guthrum to come to the new faith, which Guthrum duly did. Now, whether Guthrum did that because he suddenly felt the, the need to do it in his heart, or whether he just did it as part of a, of, of a peace treaty, it would be hard to say. But Guthrum converted to Christianity and the negotiations finally gave the Vikings a, a large tranche of the north and east of England. And it became known as the Dane Law, the place where Dane law, Viking law prevailed, not English law, not Anglo-Saxon law. It was its own self-contained Viking kingdom within the British Isles, the Dane law. And all of that was sorted out in the aftermath of 
Alfred and Guthrum and, and the Battle of Eddington. Wow, so that was an important battle then. It was an important battle, and it was there, or it was very close by, that in 1693 this ploughman, this lucky ploughman, turned over this artefact, which is the Alfred Jewel. So from an archaeological and historical point of view, it's lovely to have it turn up there. You know, that just, just the fact that it happens in the vicinity of that great triumph by Alfred that, that had such an impact on the destiny of the eventual England and, and, and Britain as a whole. Now, Alfred, Alfred's one of only two kings who are given the epithet of great. He's Alfred the Great. The only other one is Canute. He was a Viking, Canute the Great. But there's only two of them. Alfred was held in such high regard that he, he didn't call himself Alfred the Great. He, he was remembered after his own time, after his death, he was remembered by his descendants and successors as Alfred the Great. Because that victory at Eddington, that stemming of the Viking tide, and other moves that Alfred was able to make, the way in which he understood governance, the way he understood kingship, laid the foundations for what became England, for what became Britain. And it starts to radiate out from that victory at Eddington. And the fact that the Alfred Jewel was found there is, is just particularly sweet. So Alfred and the Vikings are vying for control. And after the Battle of Eddington, they divide up the land. Yes. There's everything to play for. You know, in the, in the 870s and the 880s, and during Alfred's reign... There was everything to play for. You know, there, there are Vikings on the scene and they're vying with the Anglo-Saxons. And the Anglo-Saxons themselves are relatively recent incomers. They're not British. They, they've come in from, you know, the Angles and the Saxons, they come in from northern Germany, northern Europe, in the aftermath of the Romans. And the Romans were foreigners. You know, so it, once the Roman tenure of, of, this, of, of these islands was over, the Anglo-Saxons came in and they had everything their own way for a while. And then after a couple of centuries, the Vikings come and the Vikings challenge them. And yes, there, there, are, there's the, there are some of the, the, the original indigenous British people have been pushed out to the fringes. So the people who were pushed west by the Anglo-Saxons are the Welsh. They're some of the original British stock. And then... North of Hadrian's Wall, you get into the territory of, you know, the Scots, who are themselves foreign. You know, the Scots, in all likelihood, came in from Ireland. And they established a Gallic kingdom that began to displace the, the indigenous population up there, who were the Picts that the Romans had written about, the people of the designs, the people that wore body paint or were tattooed. You know, they were part of the indigenous population who were themselves pushed out by other incomers in the form of the Irish Scots. So, you know, in the ninth century, there's still everything to play for. You know, there isn't an England as we would understand it, and there isn't a Scotland as we would understand it, or a Wales. It's molten, if you like, in the same way that planet Earth was molten for, for millions of years before it solidified and before the oceans formed, well, at, at this point in British history, it's all malleable. 
and everything's to play for and nothing's set in stone yet. But the achievement of someone like Alfred becomes crucial. His stubborn defiance of what had looked for a while like an inevitable Viking takeover changed everything. If, if he hadn't been able to, if he hadn't stopped the Vikings, then England, as you understand it, would have been undone. It would have become a, a Scandinavian territory. But that's not what happened. And so the fact that the formation of England and everything else follows from Alfred means that he is justifiably regarded as one of the foundation stones of England. see the Alfred Jewel, what does it do to you? Well, I, it's a funny one I suppose, but it's not the, I appreciate the beauty of something like the Alfred Jewel. I mean, you couldn't not. Anyone would want it. <laughs> you know, it's it's one of those things that anybody would covet. You would, if you saw it, you'd want it. Uh, and I can appreciate the artistry and the skill, but I am drawn to it and it becomes, I mean, for me, the Alfred Jewel is a destination. It's by far and away the smallest destination, but it is one of the hundred places. I mean, the place I'm talking about is the Alfred Jewel. And it's what it represents. It's knowing that there's a connection there with whatever churchman received it with his little care package <laughs> involving the book and his instructions about what to do. Yeah. And, and, you know, it would, have, it would have spent some time being used as what it was. Heaven knows how it ended up in a farmer's field in North Petherton. But for a while it was used for its intended purpose. You know, so you know that, you know, that someone was holding it while they were carefully pointing out and reciting the words of this book. It's just, it's all held there and even more profound. I mean, if you want to get right down into, the, into this fantasy for me, where I just happily let my imagination run away with me. There's a book by a, a science writer, really, called Sam Keane, and it's called Caesar's Last Breath, the epic story of the air around us. And it's a fantastic read, because it's based upon an outstandingly exciting notion. It's called Caesar's Last Breath because, according to Sam Keane, and according to science, when Caesar lay dying on the floor of the Senate, having been stabbed by Brutus and the rest of them, when he exhaled and said, et tu Brute, and that was it, he was gone, molecules from that breath, scattered though they are, are still among us. I mean, after all, where can they go? They're still in the atmosphere. Now, hypothetically, a molecule of that last breath by Caesar could be in your room where you're sitting now and you might be about to breathe it in again. You could breathe in a molecule that once upon a time was exhaled by Caesar as he lay dying. And it's not just him, obviously. There are out there little traces of Cleopatra's perfume, the exhalations of dinosaurs from hundreds of millions of years ago as they burped their way through the primordial forests, eating whatever, breathing out and exhaling. Molecules of those breaths are all around us, dispersed and scattered, but they're there. 
Now, I read that and think about that, and that, that blows my mind, if you pardon the pun. And so it seems to me, when it comes to something like the Alfred Jewel, really why it excites me is not because it's made of gold. It's, it's not because it's a beautiful piece of artwork. It's that in my fantasy that once upon a time, trapped beneath the rock crystal and the cloisonne enamel might be a molecule of the air of King Alfred the Great's time. That it might be a molecule of that world might be held there like a, a flower pressed between the pages of a book. It's part of the same emotion that makes me almost get a lump in my throat when I stand in St Whiston's crypt at Repton. Just that possibility that down there is a molecule or two of air that was maybe exhaled by an Anglo-Saxon pilgrim who came to spend some time beside the, the bones of St Whiston. Scientifically, it's possible that molecules of that world are there. And, and so when I look at something like the Alfred Jewel, what thrills me beyond expression is the possibility that a molecule of that world, of the air that Alfred breathed, or that bishop, or that churchman, or that congregation, might be held there, just trapped out of sight. That's what makes these things miraculous to me. You know, so I'm not interested in the resale value of the gold. And, I, and I'm not, you know, I don't know enough about art properly to appreciate exactly why it's regarded as such a high point of the, of the artist's and the jeweler's trade and craft. For me, it's a tangible, physical connection to another world, which is the world of the past. Terminus postquem. After the arrival of the Vikings, things changed forever. This is the hunt for the bones of King Alfred the Great, the leader who stood in their way, the monarch who laid some of the foundations which would determine how England and Britain were shaped. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. Check out Neil Oliver Love Letter the podcast's Instagram account. And to ensure you get each new episode of the podcast as it goes live, don't forget to subscribe, write a review and share with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production by Althorpe Studios. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.